Thank you very much, Brian. I appreciate that. If, if you guys have questions about that, um, talk to Brian. I know he'd, he'd be happy to speak to any of you about what God is doing in Laos. So let's say Laos. I'm sorry. I put the S on. Does that make me French or not French? <laughs> okay. An imperialist. <laughs> I've been called worse. Let's face it. Hey, so if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, a tiny little letter that Paul wrote, a church smaller than this one. I'm excited to dig into this today. It's a cool passage. And while you're turning there, we do have a partnership class coming up. Um, someone's going to talk about it after the service. I get to teach that class. It's my favorite class to teach. So if you're excited about maybe learning more about who Legacy is, what makes us tick the way we tick, uh, maybe some of our distinctives, that would be a class that you could come to to learn more. Also, um, it gives you access to ask questions, right, which it can be kind of hard to get that. It's a safe environment to do that, to explore some of the things that we talk about from the stage. Um, so anyway, First Thessalonians. I'm looking forward in the next couple weeks, next few weeks, traveling through chunks of 1 Corinthians um, as a letter. We actually start that next week. In all honesty, I'd prefer to just tackle the whole book. I mean, I think you know that. We've gone through eight or nine books of the Bible as a church from verse one to verse end. Um, we mapped that one out, me and Chris did, uh, over at Legacy West. It'd take us over a year to get through that. <laughs> Some of you still remember John, where it took us 48 weeks to get through John, and you're like, oh, please don't do that. It's good to go through books uh, even the long ones, verse by verse. We just felt like there are probably some passages and chunks of Scripture and even, yes, books that would be more helpful to legacy at this time. So in the future, we will tackle all of 1 Corinthians. It's a fascinating book. I love it. But we did want to approach for a few weeks some of the more challenging and provocative passages, namely chapters 12, 13, and 14. These chapters are a challenge. They require good teaching and good preaching. They're not the same. The teaching helps cut through the confusion. Preaching works on the affections of the heart, right? I happen to be a teacher that gets to preach. I like that. It's just who I am. I'm not a true preacher. So I'm glad to bring maybe both of those into a book like 1 Corinthians because, listen, it's about the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and how we interact with those gifts as a church. Let's just say there's a lot of confusion there. It requires good theology and good teaching, and I'm glad to do that. But, but, even when you have clean doctrine and you can check all the boxes, the heart still struggles. The heart still struggles with the things that the Holy Spirit does around us because you can't predict it. We don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going. We, we can't put it in a box. We can't put the person of the Holy Spirit under our leash, we can't control him. We can't label or even categorize a lot of what he does. And then the gifts of the Spirit can be dropped and kicked around and fumbled too. So there's that. It needs good teaching and it needs good preaching. I understand how volatile the passages can be. And not just because of how odd it might read in today's context, but also because a lot of us bring baggage to those chapters of the Bible, right? Some of you... You've seen the gifts of the Spirit and just the person of the Holy Spirit highly mishandled, right? Abused. And so it's an open wound for you, and I get it. I'm there with you. I resonate with you. I've seen a circus full of oddness, filled with people that mean to do really odd things and some people that just don't know, really good people. 
Some of you, not so skeptical, just inquisitive. Maybe you come from no church background at all. So you get to chapters like that, they start talking about things like prophecy or tongues or words of knowledge or wisdom. or You, you start hearing of these things, reading of these things, you wonder, what is going on? I don't know what any of that means. Some of you, you might come from church backgrounds, hear me now, where the Holy Spirit was not denigrated, the gifts weren't mocked, but it's not really something that they groomed in you. It's not something that was any more than just maybe possibly tolerated, so that whenever you get to these places in the Bible, you don't know what to do. You start guessing, maybe they're not for today, maybe they're not for me, maybe I don't have any, maybe I should just keep reading. Because after all, there are far more important things in the Bible than these things called the gifts, right? That's what we tell ourselves. So we move through. So God and his thoughtfulness, and he is really, this is why, I'll tell you, this, your Bible is really cool. It, God in his considerateness knows how much we struggle with this, so he just deals with it. He actually speaks through Paul by inspiring Paul, and he says in chapter 12, verse 1, don't turn there, stay where you're at. He just says, this is how he kicks everything off. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. I'm so glad for those words. It's as if Paul is saying, listen, been getting the emails. I've heard the text message. I've, I've, I'm aware there's confusion, there's anger, there's weirdness going on. So let's just talk about it for a little bit. Let's talk about these spiritual gifts. So Paul's not scared. It's not inconvenienced. He's not done with the spiritual gifts or the Holy Spirit. He's excited. And I am too. In all honesty, I'm nervously excited though. Does that make sense? I'm nervously excited. But just to be up front, let me just tell you, Legacy Church, we are a spirit-filled church. By the way, every Acts 29 church is. But we are a spirit-filled church, meaning this. We believe in the person and the movement of the Holy Spirit today just as we see in the New Testament, full stop, period. That's what we believe. Let me explain. If you are a Christian, a son or a daughter of the king, you are who you are because of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. If the Holy Spirit did not flip that switch on, you would still be walking dead in your sin. It's the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit that what we'll say is activates the human soul, right? It's, it's what the Bible calls regeneration. Um, Ezekiel will refer to it back in his prophecies as the heart of stone, an unfeeling, unresponsive heart being pulled out, and a heart of flesh that can respond and can feel being put in its place, like a heart transplant. New Testament, we call it regeneration, right? Paul speaking to Titus. Stay where you're at. He says this in the third chapter as he speaks with his disciple, and he says, God saved us. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus. Later on, John says that the same explosive spirit that carried Jesus from a cold, dark tomb, this explosive, powerful spirit of God is actually alive in you actually alive in you, not just to save you, but to sustain you for your whole life. Let me just be frank. There is no gospel without the Spirit of God. Jesus lived by the Spirit of God, did miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
said yes to what he needed to by the power of the Holy Spirit, said no to what he needed to say no to by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave himself in a deep passion because of the power of the Holy Spirit, came from the tomb with this power of the Holy Spirit, and yet he sends this loving spirit to you, both to save and to sustain you for your good and for his glory. There is no gospel without this. The Holy Spirit is not a backup quarterback, not a footnote in the Trinity. There is no gospel. There is no good news without him. So in this sense, yes, we're a spirit-filled church. But I'll actually go a step further and say that everything we even understand about ourselves spiritually, about Jesus, and about God is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Meaning whenever you read the Bible and something hits you, and maybe you've read it a thousand times, maybe you haven't, you just read it and it, let's just say it ministers to you, right? It's like maybe the first time you've read it, but it's almost as if you could hear God speaking to you through that passage. And that's not because you got a lot of sleep the night before. That is not natural. It's not because you had a couple bulletproof coffees and your brain is activated and you're turned on. It's not, not, nothing did that except for the Holy Spirit decided at that moment, at that time, in that place, in that passage, he was going to speak to you. That first time, you realized that you were broken and in deep need and needed to be rescued. That moment where I always say from here, that moment where you look at your hands with the blood on them, you say, oh my God, what have I done? And then you see the blood on the cross and you say, oh my God, what have you done? That moment was a gift to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Any positive change in your thinking and your behavior has been carried out by the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever encouragement you get in a sermon, book, passage, piece of art, song, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Any fruit you see in evangelism, any fruit you see in discipleship around you is by the power of the Holy Spirit. When you trust, when you obey, when you have faith, that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anytime you see Christ clearly, that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me remind you, that is, that is his major goal. The Holy Spirit's major goal, his primary, is to show you Christ. To show you, now, he, he does more than that, but he does not do less than that. Show you Christ. That is what he wants to do. But I'll go a step further, right? And say that without this, just this activity, this living today activity of the Holy Spirit, we have no hope in reaching Knoxville. You have no hope in reaching your family. You have no hope in reaching your cul-de-sac, your street, your neighborhood, this city, the Knox metro area, this part of the state, this region, this country overseas, there is no hope. There is no hope. To be healthy missionaries, we have to learn to depend upon the person of the Holy Spirit to just do basic things like open doors, uh, revive hearts, awaken hearts. Soon, and when we have our chili cook-off, you're going to hear about that here in a little bit. I think it's in a, I don't, I don't even know. I'm so out of it. It might be in a week or two. They will correct me when they come up here and give the announcements. But that's where we get to celebrate year eight as Legacy Church from our public launch, right? And some of you were here whenever we were back there in the living room eight years ago. We're down in my basement 
literally sitting on beanbags and bar stools, taking communion on our pool table. We didn't even have a worship team. I think VeggieTales was our, our kids' community director, right? That's who we were as a church. And now we are in two locations, and we're listed as one of the top multiplying cultures in the country. And hear me, and when I say all that, the Holy Spirit did every single bit of that. We did none of it. The Holy Ghost did all of that, all of it. We're just passengers, dependent passengers. As I like to tell our pastors and other pastors, we're like custodians, basically, stewarding all the stuff that God is doing around us, but we create nothing. And anything we do in the future of any significance and fruit as a church is going to be done the same way. It'll be the Holy Spirit. Be the Holy Spirit. So when you pray for your neighbors or your family, pray for those that you work with, to become a Christian, to see Jesus as he clearly is, what you were really asking is for the Holy Spirit to come and reveal Christ to that person, to draw attention to Jesus as the hero of the gospel, both for their salvation and then to sustain them. And we are dependent on this 100%. But I'll take it a step further. We'll go one step further, and I will say that we are also a spirit-filled church because we believe that he still moves in us and through us through the giftings that he thoughtfully, considerately, and strategically gives to his people so that we can do effective ministry, okay? Paul spills not a little bit of ink talking about these, which is why we're gonna spend some time in those parts of the Bible, also why we're where we're at today. I mean, enter the church of Thessalonica, right? Awesome church, full of awesome people. And some of them were purposely, and some of them were inadvertently smothering the work of God and even hating the work of God in their midst. We're going to read about it. So look in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16 through 22. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Very powerful. It's going to help us see Christ much more clearly. We read Paul saying, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Okay, so right up there with praying, thanking, right up there with all of those things that we look at and say are important, he says this, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. He's, he's exiting this letter. It feels like a junk drawer a little bit if you read through it in one sitting. It feels like he's just grabbing stuff and kind of placing it in there. And, and maybe there's some truth to that. That's how we talk, too, on the phone, right? That's how we write. That's how we send emails. Oh, and another thing. Oh, and real quick. That's kind of where we're at in this letter. But let me just put some context because it helps you understand who is hearing this. When this letter was written, the Bible you hold in your hand was incomplete, there was no canon like what you hold. In fact, we have zero biblical evidence, by the way, that Paul had any understanding or even thought that any of his letters would even be put in something we call the New Testament today. He was waiting for Christ to come back any day, right? I mean, the most that was roaming the countryside, pieces of James and pieces of Galatians. That's all the church had. This would have been the third letter chronologically that was written, right? That's fascinating to me. They didn't have this wide systematic theology that we think that they did. I've got, I don't just have books full of systematic theology. I have shelves full of books of systematic theology, right? More than I'll ever read. They had a piece of James and a piece of Galatians, maybe, maybe. That's who we're talking about. 
also roaming the countryside, not just chunks of letters, but also itinerant preachers and teachers. Some of them good. Some of them not so much good, right? This is why, by the way, you see the New Testament speak quite a bit on false teachers, on the danger of false teachers coming in and out. And I think probably the more provocative one for me is in Acts 20. Uh, You don't have to turn there. Again, this will be up on the screen. I want you to stay where you're at. But this is an interesting, this is actually an interesting moment where Paul is saying goodbye to men and women that he loved who were leading the church of Ephesus. And he says this about a great church full of great people that he loves, has deep affection for. By the way, everyone's crying. This is said through tears, this passage. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Okay, here's what I'm not shocked about. I'm not shocked about wolves coming, being smooth, ripping people out of a flock. That happens, happens today. Listen, we've had to chase some wolves away from here. This still happens. The shock value in what Paul is saying is that it's going to happen from the fabric of the church. That's amazing, isn't it? How do you know? How do you know who's legit? How do you know who to follow? Jesus is clear. It's probably another sermon altogether, but in Matthew 7, he just says, look at their fruit. Look at their fruit. Look at their fruit. He doesn't say look at their skills, because they all had really big skills. We're talking about TED-level speakers We're talking about speakers that have mastered communication, mastered connecting to an audience. Luke, how do you know that? Because we have them today. I don't think that's new. We still have them, right? So he says, don't look at their skill set. They'll always tickle ears, as he tells his disciples. You've got to look at the fruit that's behind them. All right, again, that's another sermon. I just want to show you that this is a unique moment. These people, this church, they didn't know which leader to follow. They didn't know it was legitimate well, they didn't know what it looked like to see prophecy when it was healthy or what to do when it didn't look very healthy. Like, what, what happened when people make mistakes? What do we do with them? Do we kick them out of the church? That sounds about right. Let's kick them out of the church. I don't know what to do with them. They don't know what to do. So they have questions, as do most of us today, right? We have questions. In fact, full confession, full confession. I have a rapid, quick, knee-jerk reaction to weird stuff happening. I just do. Crazy people saying crazy things and doing crazy things make me nervous, capital N, nervous, right? I just want to clamp down on everything. I'm super cynical, and I will just shut the whole operation down, all in the name of security, safety, and integrity, right? Ask my friends. I can't even joke around about some stuff tambourines and screaming at demons and tongues and anointing cars with oil and getting starched out in the aisle so you flop around and bark like a dog and, and, a, and a microphone in the middle of the church for anyone who wants to come and talk on it. I can't even, I get unnerved hearing those stories. The thought of something like that happening here makes me petrified. I just cannot do it. Can't do it. I would have made a great Thessalonian. Let me tell you right now. Great I'd have been on a leadership team somewhere doing something. I get these people. And on the flip side, I'm a veritable expert in quenching the Holy Spirit when he is moving. I'm very good at saying no to what God may very well be saying yes to. I want the Holy Spirit to come. 
I want him to be welcome in this place. But this is what my heart wants to pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here and in my life as long as you promise not to do something very weird, right? As long as you promise not to do something I cannot control, as long as you're semi-predictable, as long as you're neat and tidy and dignified and socially acceptable, if you could check all of those boxes, then you are welcome here, right? Are you anywhere close to that? Is it, could, could that be true for you? Could that be true for you? Because here's the thing. The Thessalonian church, they loved God. They loved God. They valued predictability, safety, and security. They valued that over a very powerful and unpredictable Holy Spirit, right? Which is why Paul is helping them so much. Because there's two ramifications to something like that, and Paul alludes to both of them. Ramification one is we despise the gifts like prophecy. He mentions prophecy here. Again, he's on his way out of a letter. Had he had more time, I guarantee you tongues would be on that list and a bunch of other things, right? He says, don't despise prophecy. Second ramification is mishandling the Holy Spirit himself. And this is what I want to spend time on a little bit today with the time I have left, because that's a thing. That's a thing. Extinguishing, smothering, quenching the person of the Holy Spirit is a thing. It's not just our church that struggles with it. It's not just the Thessalonian church. It's not just the Corinthian church. It was also the Ephesian church. It says in verse 30 of chapter 4, Paul says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The J.B. Phillips translation says, Never hurt the Holy Spirit. Never hurt the Holy Spirit. Grieve the Holy Spirit. I mean, is this surprising to you that we could even do those things? I mean, it's got to be a little bit surprising that we could hurt the Holy Spirit. Doctrinally, it's a paradox. It's a mysterious one, too, because here's the truth. God is above all of our rock throwing. He doesn't have to put pads on. <laughs> He's in no danger of us hurting him or inflicting pain on him of any kind. This is what the Bible calls, or not what the Bible calls, this is what I'll just say theologians, uh, scholars, they'll call the impassibility of God. I-M-P-A-S-S-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. The impassibility of God. The, the impassibility of God is just says that he is not subject to suffering and pain in the way that you are subject to suffering and pain. He doesn't say ouch at our rock throwing. But this passage says that we can grieve him. We can inflict upon him. We can hurt him to a certain degree. So how is it? How do we grieve an ungrievable God? How do we hurt an unhurtable God? The answer is actually the gospel. God decided that he would allow it to happen. Because he's not just impassable, he's also incarnational as well. He would stoop. He would enter. He would come to our level with us and open himself to all the rocks we care to through. The gospel is that Jesus genuinely feels pain. He is fully God, and yet he's also fully man. What this means for you, by the way, is when you cry tears, those tears are understood by a God who has also had tears roll down his face. And when you have a broken heart that is interpreted by a God who has also had his heart broken deeply. 
This is important for us, friends. Listen, this is a giant cornerstone to the gospel story that we love to drop our lives on because without this impassable slash incarnational God, without this other God yet us God, without that, Jesus could not stand in our place and the gospel could not be true. Jesus uniquely is touching God. He's touching man. He is both fully at the same time. Why does he do this? Why does an impassable God become incarnational? He does it for your good, and he does it for his own glory. But one big reason we don't consider hurting God is because we consider our relationship with God to be primarily legal. We think in legal terms, and I think it's probably because of the part of the world we're from or how we, how we grow up, how we learn. We think in forensic terms. It sounds like this. God is above. I am below, right? He gives laws. I break them, right? So he presides as a judge in a court. I come as a defendant. Of course, he's a righteous judge, so he is right, and I am wrong. And there are consequences, and the consequences to that wrongness is the penalty of death. But the good legal news is, is your judge, who sees you as wrong, he doesn't say, oh, listen, but I'm a really good God, so I'm going to make you innocent, and wave a wand, and then you're innocent. And he's not a judge that just commutes your sentence. He's actually, legally, he crawls off of the bench himself, takes his adornment off, and takes your punishment for you. That's the legal gospel. That's the forensic truth. And all of that is true. But it's not the whole story. We also have an intimate relationship. He's also a thoughtful father, wounded counselor, friend, considerate helper, long-suffering with us. He carries us when we're weak. He grants friendship when we're lonely. He lovingly looks upon us. He smiles upon us even. He's thoughtful of our needs. And whenever we make a mess, or whether we are a mess, he's not requiring penance from his family because he holds you close. See, the gospel's not just a story of how we're forensically justified. It's also a love story about a loving Jesus giving you a loving spirit. And that, you can grieve. That relationship, you can hurt. If the Holy Spirit was just some vague force roaming like a vapor, some impersonal energy, you could prob- probably say, I'm not, I can't hurt that, I can't grieve that. But a person? Absolutely. A love relationship? Sure. Sure. So how does one go about doing this? Hurting, extinguishing, smothering, loathing. How do we do this to the Holy Spirit? Very simply, there's not 10 things we do, there's one thing we do. We just simply live against the grain of God's heart. We say no when he says yes, we say yes when he says no. It's really that simple. It's really that simple. It's all we do. It's all we do. In Galatians, Paul actually speaks to this a little bit. Again, you can stay where you're at. I'm just going to flip right over to it and read it to you. Galatians 5, if you've been in the church for long, you probably will Just remember, resonate with this passage. But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Interesting. 
You know what's also interesting about the Holy Spirit is he interacts with believers differently now than he interacted with people in the Old Testament where he would come and he would leave. He would come and he would leave. You can kind of catch that when you read through some of the narratives. But after Pentecost, when the church was started, the Holy Spirit comes to new believers and does not leave. He is with us. And I mean 24-7, not taking a smoke break, nothing. When you're eating, he's with you. Sleeping, he's there. You're on Instagram, he's right there. Binge watching, whatever is binge watchable today, he's doing that. He's driving to work with you. He's parked under the squat rack with you, brushing teeth with you, watching you pay the bills when you're alone, clipping your toenails, doing your thing that you only do when you're alone. He's there. He's with you. He's with you, even right now as we sit here, observing. He's part of you. He's not just observing what you do and don't do. He's also observing the very deepest thoughts of your heart, the ones you've parked deep, right? The ones that you've harbored, the ones that you make provision for, even excuses for. He sees everything. And let's just face it, just for, again, Frank, we would be doing more evil things if we had the courage to do more evil things. But aren't there just some evil things that we're just never going to do because the risk is just not worth the reward? But we'll harbor it up here. We'll pretend. We'll keep. We'll protect it. We'll feed it. And he sees all of it. You see, the Thessalonian church was moving against the grain of God's heart, and we see it specifically in prophecy. We see a church that sees God moving, and yet they don't like it one bit. They don't like it one bit. And we get this. I mean, whenever the Holy Spirit moves, not always, but often, we're pushed to this place of discomfort. It could be the spiritual gifts, and oftentimes it is. But it could also be the Holy Spirit kind of nudging you towards forgiving somebody you've been unable to forgive. Man, that's tough, isn't it? To encourage somebody that just is really difficult, they won't receive the encouragement. To repent from a sin. To preach the gospel to people that are very, very difficult to preach the gospel with. To give your time to the people of the city and to the people of the church. To give your finances. To do all kinds of things. When the Holy Spirit is maneuvering you and pushing you, it's going to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes we too... Just like the Thessalonians, we see God move, and we don't like it one bit. We don't like it. It's the Thessalonian predicament. And if this is you, and you were grieving the Holy Spirit, either because of what you're doing or not doing or what you're thinking, friends, listen, that is not a nothing. There's a price tag. There's consequences to that, deep ones. One of them is we just build calluses on our heart. Calluses just do what calluses do, though, don't they? What used to be sensitive, you don't even feel anymore. What used to be obvious and clear. It's just, it's obscured, right? We're numb to a certain degree. What was vibrant becomes very boring and dull. This is why you'll see Jesus and Paul quoting Isaiah. Three times this will be in your Bible, by the way, where they refer to the people of Israel by saying, this people, these Israelites, their people, their heart is growing dull, their ears, they can barely hear anymore, their eyes, they don't see anything anymore. And listen, if this is you, and you can sense that your heart has grown calloused over time and dull, it is sin in you that has done that. It's just sin in you. You've been moving against the grain of God's heart, saying yes where he says no and saying no where he says yes. Okay? And we're going to talk about that just in a second, but 
there are further consequences. One of them, and this is a scary one, you will feel alienated from God. You will feel it. You'll feel this felt aloneness, losing this felt sense of God's love for you. You'll start to lose grip on this excitement of how much God looks at you, loves you. You'll lose grip on the joy of what we call the gospel. Not only will you be okay with sin entering the picture, but you'll actually start to be okay with your relationship exiting the picture. This is why some of you, prayer has slipped out of your life, and you just don't miss it that much, do you? You should be scared if this is you, if you don't even know where your Bible is, or maybe you, 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 don't, you, couldn't, you couldn't even point out what part of the Word has, has ministered to you most in the last month, year. You just don't have any moments of sitting at the feet of Jesus saying, man, I'm really excited to be here, and I'm really excited to hear what you have to say to me. Maybe those aren't happening anymore, and maybe those aren't happening anymore, and you don't even miss them. If that is you, friend, you have a calloused heart. You have a calloused heart, and you're starting to feel alienated, because what was once fascinating to you is not anymore. And of course, it, it is more indicting when you look around and you see a sea of people that actually do love the gospel, and they are enjoying this thing called Christianity, and they enjoy their hero, Jesus. It's easy for us to kind of medicate on that and say, yeah, but they're just being fanatics. They're young. They're idealistic. They will eventually get to where I am. That's what we tell ourselves anyway, right? That's what we'd like to think. If this is you, but it didn't used to be you, could it be that you've grown dull and calloused because of grieving and quenching and smothering and hating and loathing the work of God in and around you? Could it be? Let me tell you what is waiting for you. You will struggle with assurance. You'll struggle with assurance whether or not God has done anything in you. This is a real struggle. You'll wonder if you're even saved at all. Why? Why is that? Why is that just where you end up? Paul says in Romans 8, 16, stay where you're at. He says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Well, yeah, okay, unless you've turned the volume all the way down. Unless you've spent a lifetime or a year quenching, smothering, hating, hurting, stiff-arming the Holy Spirit, you won't experience this thing where there's a, a witness that confidence leaks and it's a living hell, this place of uncertainty. My first decade of Christianity, I was in that hell. Wondering how many times do I really need to get saved before it takes, whatever that even means. Because you just cannot unknow what you already know about salvation, yet you can't sense any assurance in your own life. Some of you are in that living hell right now. It's exhausting. It's exhausting to be in that place. Now here's the good news. If you were in Jesus, that's not a true alienation. It's a felt one. You feel it, but it's not true. And what I mean is, is if God extended grace to you without your ability to earn it, then you're never going to have it taken away because of your bad performance. If your behavior did not grant it to you, your misbehavior won't have it removed from you. Okay, I know there are churches in town that disagree with that. That's fine. I think we're going to build a different disciple here. The gospel is not a contract that is two-way. It's a contract that is one-way. Okay? 
Because if it wasn't, it wouldn't be good news anymore. Now, some of you, you have a real sensitive spirit, right? You just have a real sensitive, tender spirit. And at the same time, you have a very low IQ and a low theology over what the gospel is and how good God is. And so you always wonder, gosh, am I really, I really want to be saved. I really love God. I want, but I'm not sure if I'm loved. That's just low gospel IQ, okay? And then some of you, it's the opposite. You just have a calloused heart and you feel alienated because you've hurt and you've hated the Spirit of God, and you've done that often, okay? Again, that's a different sermon probably. But another consequence that stacks on top of that is, and this won't be a felt alienation, it will be a real alienation. You will feel alienated from others around you. You'll lose a sense of connection with people, particularly God's people, the church, right? And so what it looks like is the people that Jesus died to create, the church capital C, as Brian said it earlier, this just becomes a burden to you. Sermons are boring. Gatherings are boring. This thing is boring. You hear the phrase, I'm just not fed anymore, right? So people will come here from other churches, and they'll say, I'm left that church because I don't feel fed anymore. Or they will leave this church, and they will go to another church. I don't feel fed anymore. And listen, I know what the predictable pastor thing is to say to that. I know what you've heard. If you've ever said that to a pastor, if they've been alive for very long in the pastoral position, I guarantee they've all said, it's not my job to feed you. It's your job to feed you. Here, I'm just going to, just a little bit. I don't totally disagree with that, okay? But is it really your job or is it the Holy Spirit's job to feed you? God is the one that is activating these truths and these revelations in your heart. But what happens if you just smother and extinguish and hate and loathe? You're not going to feel fed. You're definitely not going to feel full. We can say it that way, right? That's true. And so when sermons are boring and you don't feel fed and gatherings are painful, then community, like in a living room, like a missional community, <laughs> that's just way more trouble than it's worth, right? Way more trouble. Church family becomes a people that you do not invest in or grow with or celebrate with. You just sit next to them. Now, if this is you, could it be that you have grown dull and calloused because of the quenching and the smothering of the work of God in and around you? Refusing him, hating him, hurting him. Now hear me. This seems like a lot of bad news. I've definitely let a lot of the air out of the room, and I know that. But just as I said last week, our story is a beautiful story because there's a pivot. There's a turn in the story, right, that we all wait for. Because we get to this place in sermons or stories like this, and we realize, I can't do anything to clean myself. Right? And then the gospel comes along. And the gospel tells us that we are always, we've always been a people good at quenching, hating, and despising God. And he's always been a God that is very good at giving gifts to people that do that. Even himself. You see, when we give gifts to each other, we expect something in return, a reciprocation, right? Not always a gift. I mean, some of us do, right? We're like, hey, I got you a gift, like, right? <laughs> but just, but just, the smile on their face, just the, oh, man, I've always wanted this. Just the, man, I'm so, man, this is awesome. Thank you. Even that is reciprocation. And we kind of wait for that, don't we? We just kind of hope for it. You see, God is the opposite. When he gives a good gift to us, he knows we're not, reci not going to reciprocate. We're still throwing rocks as he's giving the gift to us, right? 
It is while we are sinners that he visits us with this elaborate grace, not while we're clean. He's different in how he gives gifts. Let's face it. We are abusers of gifts, and we've proven it by the fact that we've even broken Jesus. Let me, let me explain. I say this in wedding ceremonies from time to time when I get to do weddings, and it will sound a little bit like, hey, you know, marriage is a gift, but we break it often. Nationally, we break it at about half the time. But we, like I say, micro breaks every day. Uh, the church, capital C, is given to us. The church, the local church, is a gift to you, says the Bible. But we break each other, right? Spiritual gifts. Paul's about to go crazy on how these are beautiful. They're gifts from God, and yet we break each other with them. Listen, by the way, 1 Corinthians, it's not that the spiritual gifts are broken. It's that broken people are breaking them. That's why he's writing that, right? But we've proven it with it, the exclamation mark of he came himself from impassibility to incarnation in the person of Jesus, and we broke him. We broke him as well. So God is graceful because he gives good favor to those of us who just don't deserve it. He gives us what we don't deserve and does not give us what we do deserve. He gives us favor despite us. He is not a contractual giver. That wouldn't be grace. It's why I can very freely say that I am an expert in despising moments designed by God himself and I am, and yet know at the same moment I am loved and gifted and pursued by God. Man, the gospel is amazing. If you could get your arms around even a piece of it, it is amazing. It is sustaining. All of this to say there is hope for those of you, those of us that are calloused today. You're not where you used to be, and you know it. There's hope for those of us who feel alienated. There's hope for those of us who are alienated. Hope for those of us who break gifts. Hope for those of us that say yes to God's no's and no's to his yeses. If you've been living against the grain of God's heart, feeling alienated, losing intimacy with him, here's the good news of the gospel. There is no ladder for you to start crawling up to get good with God again. There's no ladder. The gospel in its beauty erases and removes all venues and mechanisms for you to make yourself prettier, for you to clean yourself. The beauty of the gospel is, is it takes away your ability to roll up your own sleeves and clean and work and improve yourself so that God likes, loves, approves of you more. It takes it all away which makes my job a lot easier because I have no steps for you today on how to be prettier in front of God. Got no beauty tips. There's no work release program for you. I can hand you zero shovels for you to dig yourself out of some hole so that God finally likes you again, loves you again. The only contribution you actually bring to this whole thing is your need. <laughs> That's it. Your desperate need. Your desperate, dependent need. You need to do no more than invite and ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of where it is that you're saying yes to his no and no to his yes. And sometimes it's, it's automatic. We know. It's, we don't even really need a lot of the Holy Spirit to really see where it is that we are moving against the grain of God. But I'll be honest, there are a lot of times where I will pray this prayer, and a day later, a minute later, a month later, something occurs to me, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm sinning against God there, and I didn't actually catch that. I didn't see it. Or maybe I kind of halfway saw it and didn't have the courage to lean into it. 
is conviction. It's what we call conviction. Condemnation is the enemy telling you that you are not a good fit. You are wrong. Conviction is where the Holy Spirit tells you that is not a good fit for your lifestyle and that is wrong. There is a, such a big difference there. But friends, listen. If you search for him and pursue him, he will be found by you. The Holy Spirit won't be provoked, but he will be pursued. This is his promise to you. He will be found. And you need to do no more than ask him to give you the courage and the ability to repent. He'll give it to you as a gift. It's the gift of repentance. You need to do nothing more than just ask the Holy Spirit to give you a fresh, celebratory, just fascinated view of him. And he will do it. He will do it. By the way, this is step one to revival. This is the first step to revival. If you do even a cursory reading of revival in America or Europe, you will find that whether it's a city or a country, revival and repentance, they go hand in hand, by the way. You won't find one without the other, whether it's individual or corporate, and usually it's the both. I've only seen one revival in my life, and it was in a small city, and it happened in a church. I've never seen anything like it up to that point um, in, in a little city in West Texas, and I've never seen it since then. But what I saw was a very real revival. It was small, it was just in a church, and it was unmistakable that the Spirit of God was doing something serious. It's hand in hand with repentance. You need to do nothing more than just ask the Holy Spirit to give you the ability to see where you're moving against the grain and then the courage to step away from it. Repentance, right? You need to do nothing more than just ask the Holy Spirit to give you a new fascination, a celebration, and then he will visit you. He will give you new eyes and new ears, and he will pull the calluses off. This is what God says to his people in 2 Chronicles. When I shut up the heavens so that there was no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, by the way, this is a felt alienation. God did not leave his people, but they sure felt like it, I guarantee it. I guarantee they did. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Man, that's fascinating to me. It's how close we are to personal revival. How close we are. The Holy Spirit's good to us. Go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to put a bow on this and move into worship. And I will say, I know that there's a group in here. I don't know who. That you still have a heart of stone. Right? Regeneration has not occurred yet. That's why people might refer to you as unregenerate, which I don't think is the most helpful term, but it is accurate. Right? Heart of stone, don't feel anything. That's why you've walked with a, an ability to be undisturbed by the sin against God and the sin against your fellow man. It's not really bothered you. It's not really disturbed you. But maybe now you're sensing that God is stirring, doing something. Maybe now it even feels like God is doing something new. And you don't even know how to explain it. But it is something. And if this is you, the only response I can really give you is to submit and give yourself fully to what God is doing. And to really be thankful for the grace that he's extending to you, totally despite you. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this moment where just as a church, 
we repent. Whereas individuals, we repent. Lord, I as a pastor, repent. For seeing things around me that you were doing, being scared of those things and saying, no, not doing it. I'm uncomfortable. I don't like what that's going to make me do. I don't like what that's asking of me, so I'm just going to say no. Lord, it can be so subtle when I do that. And I know I'm not alone. Help us, Father, is a, is a church just like this church. There's a lot of Thessalonians in this room where we quench you, extinguish your work around us, and we loathe the work around us. But I don't even think we always mean to do that. I'm pretty sure. But Father, that you would give us a peace and a comfort in your activity around us. And Lord, that we would learn to start our prayers with, come Holy Spirit, you are welcome here, and it doesn't matter what it looks like. We know if it lines up with Scripture, we know it's safe, we know it's for us today in the church. Even if I can't put my finger on exactly what it is, and even if it moves me out of my comfort zone. So Lord, help us. And Father, I also have a burden just to pray for people that struggle with their assurance in here just because I know how exhausting, tiring, and frightening it is to go day to day to day, wondering, wondering if you're really, really saved. Lord, I pray for those in the room that, that truly are within your embrace and they are family with you, that you would give them the confidence, the confidence to say that even in their worst moment, they are no less loved than they are in their finest moment. And that it's not our performance that moves the needle of your approval and affection of us. So, Father, that you would give them that comfort and that peace and that you would enlarge and swell their, their, their gospel language, their gospel comprehension, that they could walk confidently before you, not cower, but walk confidently as child. And then, Father, I pray for those of us who, in this room, that just feel alienated and we're pretty sure that it's because we have a calloused heart. Lord, that you would begin the process of visiting and giving them gifts of repentance and, and just a gift to see your gospel with new eyes, that their heart would have a revival and an awakening in it. That instead of saying no to your yes, they would learn to say yes to your yes. And Father, I pray for those in this room that are far from you and do have an unregenerate heart. Lord, that you would visit them that you would visit them and show them how much you love them. Give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear. Give them a heart that feels. We pray the same thing for this city, Lord. We pray for this, this city the same way, that Knoxville would have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, ruin us for this city. Ruin us for this city. Lord, that we would feel compelled to pray for the move of your spirit, not just in our lives, not just in this church, but in this city. Lord, you are good to us, and we're very thankful how, how considerate you are and thoughtful. And it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen.